prayer. The verses 12 through 30, and so those are the verses we'll also read now. Philippians 1, verse 12 through verse 30. It's a bit of a a long text for a short letter, but I felt that it was best to take it as a unit, and so I hope that as we read it also, you'll be able to see the flow of thought that concludes, especially in the last three verses. Philippians 1, verse 12, then Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 24. Stands, as mentioned, the text to which we're giving our attention are the, the whole of those verses of 12 through 30, though we will be giving a special attention to the very last four verses, verses 27 through 30. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, take a look again at that at the very last sentence of our text, the verse that starts, or the sentence that starts with verse 29. That's where we're ultimately headed this morning. That's the verse that we ultimately want to try and understand because that's the summary of what Paul 
has been teaching in verses 12 through 30. We want to ask ourselves, what does Paul mean by by what he writes in that last sentence, especially in verse 29? And what are we supposed to do with that here in Alora? Here's that sentence again, or the beginning part of it. Verse 29, he says to the Philippians, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And what in the world does that mean? It has been granted to you that you should suffer for his sake. I think it's safe to say that that's pretty foreign language to us here in the West. How is suffering, whether it's for Christ's sake or not, how is suffering a gift from God? How can anyone receive it as something that's been granted to them? That's what we want to understand. And to do that, we're going to follow the train of thought in all of verses 12 through 30. And and in verses 12 through 26, we find Paul writing just about his own experience. So not yet getting to the Philippian situation, but writing about his own experience of his imprisonment and his own perspective on his suffering for Christ. And then he he works from that, that's the, the bulk of our text, he works from that to get to verses 27 through 30, which are his exhortation to the Philippians in light of what he said about his own perspective on his suffering. And so what we'll do this morning is we'll work through what Paul says there in in verses 12 through 26 about his imprisonment and his suffering and his experience of ministry in the gospel. And then we're going to come from that to his exhortation to the Philippians in verses 27 to 30, and then also consider what does that mean for us here in Alora. First then, Paul says what happened to him in his imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. He says that in in verse 12. And and there's two ways that Paul's imprisonment had that effect of ultimately advancing the gospel. And both of those are really important for us to understand if we're going to appreciate what Paul says in his exhortation to the Philippians later. First, he says, what happened to me has served to advance the gospel because it's become known, this is verse 12, throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the guards that would have been keeping watch over Paul would have obviously wanted to know what was the charge against this man that they were supposed to guard, that they had arrested. Any guard always wants to know that. What, what, are, what is this person in prison for? They want to know what's his case all about. And they would have discovered that Paul was there for no other reason than for preaching Christ. And as they got to know him personally, which they certainly would have, remember he was under house arrest, so he was still able to to live in a house, to have friends over, to, to administer his affairs from within that house. And the guards would have got to know Paul throughout that time of imprisonment. And, and they would have started to see that Christ was everything to this man Paul that they were supposed to imprison. That Paul was going through all of this for no other reason 
than that he considered knowing Christ to be worth everything that he was losing, to be worth losing his freedom and to be worth even risking losing his life. And you can understand how this would have had an impact on the people that were supposed to guard Paul. They, they would have wanted to know, who is this Christ? What is it about this Christ that makes him worth losing your freedom for and even losing your life for? What is it about this Christ that gives our prisoner Paul such joy even as he's facing the possibility of death? So, so Paul's imprisonment and his joy in the midst of that imprisonment would have had an impact on the guards keeping watch over him. And they had apparently not only come to know about Christ and about what the gospel was, but they'd also come to see how much Paul treasured Christ. And so he, he says, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. That's the first way that his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. And there's another way that Paul says his imprisonment also served to advance the gospel. He says that in verse 14, he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold now to speak the word without fear. Now we have to stop and think about that because that's counterintuitive. How in the world can Paul's imprisonment make the rest of the church more confident in Christ. What's going on there in in Paul's logic? You might have expected the exact opposite, that Paul being in prison would have caused the church to be more afraid to speak out and, and even less confident in the Lord. But Paul says most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are now even more bold to speak the word without fear. So how did, how did that happen that, that doesn't seem to, to make sense. The word that Paul uses here, which is translated confident, can also be translated as persuaded, and that's the way it's more often translated. So the brothers were persuaded in the Lord by Paul's imprisonment. Well, here's, here's how this works. Here's the reality for us. We know from the gospel, we know that knowing Christ is better than life itself. We, we confess that in Lord's Day 1. Our only comfort in life and death is that we belong to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we know that theologically. But the reality is most of us are very afraid to take that knowledge and actually live it out. To, to stake everything in our life on that truth. What might that look like for us? Well, that might mean, for example, giving up an expensive lifestyle or an expensive retirement for something much simpler because we want to invest in the kingdom of God instead, investing in missions or in in the ministry of this church, counting on Christ's promise that our reward will be great in heaven. That's one way that it might manifest itself. Or it might mean confessing sin that needs to be confessed so that Christ would be magnified also by our life, even at our own expense, so that the gospel would shine more clearly. That's another way that it might that it might manifest itself when, when we really believe and live out that our only comfort is in Christ. For all of us, it, would, it, it will certainly mean giving up 
earthly treasures, earthly opportunities in order to serve Christ in ways that will make us uncomfortable or ways that are inconvenient or perhaps even painful or perhaps emotionally heavy or difficult, perhaps expensive. That's what it means to to live out the hope that knowing Christ is better than life itself. It involves sacrifice, and that's a bold, a bold life to live. So living a, a radical Christian life, a bold Christian life, doesn't necessarily mean selling your home and giving it all to the poor, but it certainly does mean, as it did for Paul, serving God, serving the church in ways that are, that, that, that are uncomfortable, that are inconvenient, and that really make no sense at all unless the gospel is true, unless the promise of Christ is actually true. So for many Christians, like for Paul, living out the gospel, living out the hope of the gospel has literally meant giving up their actual lives or their freedom being thrown into prison. So we know that. We know at a theological level that the gospel is worth more than life itself. And yet we find ourselves, if, if you're honest, we, we all find ourselves holding back. We invest just a little. We find ourselves afraid to, to make any real concerted effort to get involved with the lives of our neighbors or co-workers for the sake of the gospel or involved in the church in ways that make us vulnerable. So how did Paul's imprisonment then change that? How did Paul's imprisonment cause, as he says, cause the believers to be more persuaded or confident in the Lord? Well, they saw by Paul's imprisonment, by Paul's sacrifice, they saw how much the gospel was really worth. And it proved to see Paul in prison proved to be an encouragement to the brothers because he was taking that bold step forward and living out the hope of the gospel that would make no sense at all if the gospel wasn't true. And so Paul's example turned out to be an encouragement. Even though he was thrown in prison, even though you might have expected them to be afraid as a result of what happened to Paul, it turned out to be an encouragement to the rest of the church so that he says they were much more bold to speak the word without fear. Something to learn from that also for us. Your life is a witness to the worth of the gospel. And your life and your sacrifices can be a tremendous encouragement to the Christians around you. For for them to see you sacrificing and risking materially and also, also spiritually, confessing your sins, sharing your struggles, entering into the struggles of others, that can be a tremendous encouragement to the Christians around you as they see how much the gospel is worth, as they see, as we see one another putting ourselves on the line for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ's honor. And and that's what Paul was doing, putting his total confidence in the promise of God that his reward would be great in heaven regardless of what he lost. And it proved to be a tremendous encouragement. There's very few things that can stimulate us to to greater, more serious and earnest obedience than to witness that risk and that sacrifice in one another. 
and especially to see them to see one another witness to, to witness one another suffering for the sake of the gospel and that's what Paul highlights then in the next several verses before we get there let me stop just as an aside and deal with verses 15 through 18. They really could have been treated on their own in a separate sermon, but chapter 2 gets to some of the same issues, so I decided to leave that till a bit later. But let me just explain what Paul is talking about in these verses, because they do serve also to, to, to emphasize his exhortation later in verses 27 to 30. He says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, though others from goodwill. Now there's a big question as to who are these people that are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Some commentators take them to be false preachers, kind of like the the super apostles that you find in in the letters to the Corinthians. These, These people that were preaching a false gospel of health and wealth and prosperity, or otherwise Judaizers who were teaching circumcision. Well, let me give you two reasons why I don't think these are false preachers. First, this sentence comes right after the last one, and Paul begins with the word, some who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So in verse 14, he said, most of the brothers are confident, but some do preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. In other words, the, the some that Paul is talking about here are some of the brothers. These, these are fellow Christians. And, and so these are, these are brothers in the church at Rome who are sharing Christ. Because remember, Paul is writing from Rome. So he's talking about the brothers there in the church at Rome. So this word some seems to be referring to those, some of those brothers And secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, Paul concludes in verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, to me, that says they're not preaching a false gospel, because Paul would not rejoice in the preaching of a false gospel. He never rejoiced at what these super apostles were doing in Corinth. Uh, Paul could not, he, he could hardly rejoice in the fact that a false Christ is being preached. So even though they're motivated by envy, by rivalry, and, and they're hoping that their preaching is going to afflict Paul in his imprisonment, that's what he says, they're still apparently preaching a gospel that's faithful enough for Paul to still rejoice that Christ is being preached. So what these verses suggest then is that there was some kind of personal rivalry happening within the church at Rome. Certain brothers who perhaps felt threatened by Paul's coming to Rome and preaching the gospel there. And instead of rejoicing in the fact that the gospel was being shared, they were instead motivated by envy and rivalry. It was turning into a a ministry competition, so to speak, in Rome. And maybe it shouldn't surprise us that, that, that this happened in Rome. You, you should know Paul did not establish the church at Rome. It's one of the few churches in the New Testament that Paul did not establish. Uh, unlike most of the churches, like Philippians, where Paul was the first missionary to get there, the founder of that church, that was not the case in, in Rome. It was already there by the time he got there. And in fact, the letter to the Romans that we have 
um, was, was written before Paul ever came to Rome, and it was written as, as an introduction of himself to, to the Roman church. He was saying, hey, Romans, I'm on my way to visit you. Here's what I believe so you get, can get to know me ahead of time. So someone else had gotten there first to Rome and had started a church there. So it's a scenario that we can, we can easily imagine. There was already an established pastor or missionary or a group of church leaders there or influential people in the church there. And they felt threatened by Paul, the, the great apostle Paul, coming there and doing ministry in, in their neighborhood. And especially they would have felt threatened by Paul's let's say, dramatic form of ministry that gets him in prison. Of course, these people don't want to have to do that kind of ministry themselves. So maybe they especially felt threatened by how much suffering Paul's version of ministry entailed and were afraid that if if they were to join hands with Paul, it would take them down that same road. These kinds of rivalries can happen within otherwise faithful Christian churches. Pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders within the church are all at risk, and any Christian in the church is at risk, of this kind of of rivalry. It's wrong, but it does happen. Christians sometimes don't like to see God's blessing on other people's ministry more than, more than their own. And, and when that happens, it becomes more about ourselves than about the gospel. And we can start to hold it against other Christians or other ministries that God is blessing them more than he might be blessing us. And, and especially that can happen if those other methods involve more suffering or more sacrifice, roads that we're not prepared to go down. Now, of course, that isn't to say, none of that is to say that, that methods don't matter, that we ought not to criticize another group's methods. There are biblical methods and unbiblical methods. But the point is, there can be this desire within all Christians, when we see another ministry growing and flourishing, to immediately conclude there must be something wrong with that other ministry, because my ministry isn't growing like that one is. And sadly, that seems to be what happened here in the church in Rome. Even though this person or these people weren't preaching a false Christ or a false gospel, they were preaching with a sense of competition or rivalry, wanting to do better than Paul, to be able to show Paul, look, your way of ministry of suffering and sacrifice is not the right way to do ministry. And so they preached the gospel in part because they hoped that their church would grow and so that they could prove to Paul that he was doing it all wrong. That's what Paul means when he says, they do this hoping to afflict me. They do this hoping to cause Paul disappointment in his own work of ministry. So he says they they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Well, why does Paul bring all this conflict up at Rome? Is this really something that that the Philippians need to know about, or couldn't he just bury it there in, in Rome? Well, Paul brings this up because he wants the Philippians to see where his priorities really are. Even though Paul was being criticized 
for his methods, and his fellow Christians were preaching the gospel out of rivalry and selfish ambition. He wants the Philippians to know, this still isn't about me. I don't care whether Christ is honored by me or by someone else as long as Christ is honored. That's what he wants to show them. His heart's beating passion is for the glory of Christ and the gospel of Christ. And to him, it doesn't matter how Christ gets that glory. It's another way then, on top of all of Paul's suffering and his imprisonment, it's another way for him to show the Philippians how valuable he considers Christ to be. His imprisonment already shows that, and his perspective on all that rivalry and competition, to his perspective that says, who cares as long as Christ is ultimately preached and glorified, that's another way to highlight the surpassing worth of, of Christ and of the gospel. So he says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether it's in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Everything in his life, by his suffering and his perspective on that rivalry, was about promoting Christ's honor, even if it came at the expense of his own honor. And this is what Paul continues then to emphasize in the next several verses. He says, Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it's my eager expectation and hope. And notice here Paul, Paul summarizes his, his ultimate hope for his whole life. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul says, I I do hope, and, and it is my expectation and confidence, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, the word translated deliverance happens to be the exact same word as as the word that's often used for salvation. And that makes it a little difficult to to know what Paul means by what he's saying. Is he referring to, this is going to turn out for my earthly deliverance from, from my Roman captors? Or is this going to lead to his eternal salvation? Which way does Paul mean it? Most likely, it seems he's referring to his earthly deliverance, because that's what he goes on to speak about in the next several verses, that he's confident that the charges against him would prove to be untrue. But then he says, in the end, it isn't really about whether he's vindicated on earth or not, because his ultimate expectation and hope is that Christ would be honored, and Christ can be honored whether he dies or whether he lives. And so he felt confident this would work out, for his earthly deliverance, that the charges against him would be shown to be false, that he'd be released, that he could go on to do further ministry, but that he was even more confident that whatever happens, whether this ultimately leads to a death sentence or life in prison for the rest of his life, in the end, he was still confident that either way, Christ would still be honored by his life or by his death. And the word honored that he uses there is literally magnified. So you might think of a magnifying glass. And and the whole point of a magnifying glass is to make something look bigger. And what he wants to to do is, is to magnify Christ. And that's not to say that Christ is small and he wants to make Christ look bigger. But Christ is small in many people's eyes. And he wants to magnify Christ's honor the way that it ought 
to be shown to be big and glorious. And so that's the example he gives then to the Philippians. His whole life was about magnifying the glory of Christ. And if his suffering would serve to further glorify Christ, then he was glad to suffer. He says he rejoices in order to do so. And that's where, that's where we get this, this famous line that all of us have heard many times, where he says, for me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. To live is Christ. In other words, his whole life was about showing the surpassing worth of Christ. That was his life's goal. And to die is gain. In other words, to die would mean that he could go and be with Christ, which he says is even far better. So what an amazing testimony Paul's life is to the exceeding value of knowing Christ. And that's what Paul is writing all of this for. He wants to show the Philippians first by his own example, his own experience. He wants to show them this is how much Christ is worth. And, and he, wants to un- he wants them to understand what lived in his heart, what drove him in his ministry so that he could magnify Christ also in their eyes and and in their hearts. And so he says, if I live, that means fruitful labor for me in the service of Christ. If I die, that means departing to be with Christ. But either way, he says, I want you to know, either way, I rejoice. So Paul does all of that so the Philippians can see his heart for Christ. He lays his heart bare before these Philippian believers. He wants them to know that Christ means everything to him. And he wants them to also know that his suffering, his imprisonment, and everything he was going through has not been an obstacle to the progress of the gospel, but has actually been a means to further progress. God used even that situation to advance the gospel. And in that, he rejoices, he says, because that means God is using him to glorify Christ. And that, of course, is his heart's ultimate desire. So that's his example that he spends all of verses 12 through 26 to to show them. That's the bulk of our text. And then he turns to his exhortation to the Philippians in verse 27. After, After presenting his own life to them, he then turns around and says, Now for you, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul gave them the example of his own life so that they would be encouraged by that, just like the believers in Rome were being encouraged by that and becoming more bold because of that. And now that they've seen his faith and his perspective on his sufferings, he then turns to them and exhorts them to also use their lives as a witness to the surpassing worth of Christ. And this is an exhortation also then for us. For now at least... We, just like the Philippians, were not being called to suffer to the same degree that Paul was being called to suffer. And Paul isn't saying here at all 
that you're not a, a real Christian if you're not in jail for your faith. There, there is a wrong kind of thinking in some Christian circles that says to, to, to live a great life for Christ means that, that you can't live a normal life, that real Christians don't live normal lives but need to go and join missions or move overseas to dangerous countries. God may be calling some Christians, some of you perhaps even, to do that, but that's not Paul's exhortation to the, to the church in Philippi, and it's not God's command to us either. Instead, Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You might think of what he wrote to the, the Thessalonians even, where he encouraged them to live quiet lives and to, to work with their hands. So, so to live a, a great Christian life is not necessarily to live a, a radical life. We, we often hear of, of phrases like, go and, and do great things for God. And, and sure, God calls us to do great things for Him, but that's not in contrast to living a normal Christian life. The command for us is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, since Paul uses this word gospel several times in this text, we should make sure that we rightly understand this. I asked the kids in catechism last year, what do you think the word gospel means? I see them, some of them smiling already because they remember this. The word gospel simply means good news. And when the Bible uses it, it means the good news that we are reconciled to Jesus Christ. So gospel is just shorthand for that phrase, the good news that we're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel means. And so Paul is saying, let your manner of life be worthy of that good news. Let, let your life reflect the, the greatness of, of that news. It's hard to translate exactly what Paul said in the original Greek. In the Greek, Paul uses a very special word. It's a word that you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a word that means to live like citizens. And he says, then, live like citizens in a manner of worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, and maybe that, that phrase is lost on us, but it would have been a very meaningful concept to the Philippians in Philippi, because citizenship was a very big concept for them. Philippi was a city that was, in the first place, a, a Roman, a, an outpost for Roman soldiers, and and so it had been. It was a city that was settled by retiring soldiers, and that made it a very distinct city in the Roman Empire. All the cities around it were not Roman colonies. They, they were cities that existed within Rome. But in Philippi, if you lived in Philippi or were born in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen with very special privileges and, and rights. And Roman citizenship was something they took very seriously in Philippi. You would have often heard it said in that city, if you grew up in Philippi, you would have often heard people say, your teachers would have said it to you, you're a Roman citizen, live in a manner of life that's worthy of Roman citizenship. It was an honor to be a Roman citizen. So Paul, he takes that same concept and he now applies it in terms of the gospel to the church. He says, you are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. In fact, he's going to say that exactly in, in chapter 3, verse 20. But he says, you are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Live 
Let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of that citizenship. Live in your, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's the call, of course, also here for us in Alora. If we are called to suffer persecution, we haven't yet been called to that, but we might be. If we're called to suffer persecution, then we ought to suffer with the same faith and the same perspective that Paul had. And we ought to be able to rejoice to be counted worthy of doing so. But as long as we're not called to suffer in that way, we are still called to use the life that God has given us to be a testimony to the worthiness of the gospel to which we've been called, to be, to be worthy of the name a follower of Jesus Christ. Is your manner of life worthy of that title? And what does that manner of life look like? Let me, let me put it this way. There's, there's a defensive and an offensive aspect to that life. And you can see that in verse 27. On the defensive side, it means standing firm in the gospel, not giving way or not collapsing before your opponents or before sin. That's what he, says, that's what he means when he says, stand, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. You see a defensive aspect to that manner of life. Christians are people who stand firm in the gospel because they know how worthy the, the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so they resist the devil. They resist sin. They stand firm. Paul knew he was unable to go from Rome to Philippi to help them through their struggles, and, and surely they had many. They were a small church. And so his prayer and his exhortation to them is that by God's grace, they would stand firm, that they would not lose the faith that they had already fought so hard to, to, to gain, and that they had demonstrated already so beautifully by sending Epaphroditus to go and help them by supporting him financially. They had shown such great faith. Paul's call to them is, now stand firm in that faith. That they would not give in from the pressures around them. Philippi hated Jews and hated Christians as a subset of Jews. That they would not abandon their faith under that pressure. That they would also not give in to temptations to sin. Temptations which are common to all of us, to all Christians. But that they would stand firm in their faith and commitment to Christ. That's the defensive side of, of a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And on the, on the offensive side, if you keep reading through, through verses 28 and 29, on the offensive side, it means striving for the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul was already doing in his imprisonment. And it's his prayer that that's what the Philippian believers would also do in their freedom, that they would strive for the faith of the gospel. Christians, whether we are facing whether we are facing persecution or whether we are in prison or whether we are living in a free country, either way, we live with the same purpose in mind to strive forward for the faith of the gospel. In other words, to strive for the glory of Christ. Your life is a calling of yourself and a calling to the entire world to repentance and faith 
in Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of your life as a Christian. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, to make your life all about calling yourself and the world to repentance and faith in Christ. There's no cause to which you can commit your life that is more worthy than that cause. And that isn't something that we only strive for out in the world when we're out with our neighbors or coworkers. It's also something we strive for amongst ourselves with each other here within the church. It's our heart's desire to use our lives to magnify Christ out there in the world as well as in here within the church, in front of each other, by our examples, by our priorities, also by our sufferings, the way that it was for Paul. And notice Paul emphasizes in in the strongest terms possible that the Philippians were to do this in one spirit, with one mind, and side by side. Well, we'll get to that more in in chapter 2 when he he gets into that in detail. But his point here is that our unity as a church is essential to our witness as a church. If the world is, is going to look at us and conclude that nothing matters to us more than the gospel, it's not going to happen if they look at a church like Rome that's divided over conflicts, over competitions and rivalries. They need to see us standing side by side, striving for the gospel in one spirit and with one mind, equally, all of us equally impressed with the glory of Christ and the worthiness of Christ as someone to live and die for. Now, it's not to say at all that Paul is telling the the Philippians to just ignore their doctrinal differences, to set aside their differences so that they can strive side by side together. No, that's not actually what he uh, tells them to do. He exhorts them instead to be of one mind. And you can see the same thing in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Mind. So he isn't calling them to some sort of artificial unity where we set aside our differences and, and all fight for the gospel under one banner. That's not what he's calling them to, but instead to a real, genuine unity, which is rooted in having the same conviction and the same love. His prayer is that they would all be equally captivated by the glory of the same gospel, that 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 would be their source of unity, that that love for the same gospel would be what holds them together, that that would be their, their source of unity. Now, now there, may be, there may be times among Christians when we are better off at just agreeing to disagree for now so that we can work on our differences later on. For, for a time, that might happen. But the ultimate call here is not to just set aside differences, but to come to agreement, because it's, it's precisely our mutual conviction in the gospel as the main thing, which is the good news of, of Jesus Christ. That is what holds us together, or what ought to hold us together. So just as Paul was then striving for the faith, he was on the defensive side standing firm in prison, and on the offensive side striving for the faith of the gospel through his imprisonment, his exhortation to the Philippians in their freedom is to do the same thing, stand firm and strive for the sake of the gospel in unity, standing side by side. 
And then finally, he exhorts them to not be frightened in anything by their opponents. The reality is the Philippians were not strangers to suffering and persecution. They weren't in prison like Paul was, but they had sacrificed much for the sake of the gospel, and already they had endured much at the hands of their opponents. Remember last week we saw how Paul wrote, how Paul wrote to the church in the Corinthians about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia, how in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed into a wealth of generosity. So the Philippian believers were not strangers to suffering or or afflictions. They, They knew what it meant to suffer for Christ. And so Paul encourages them not to be afraid in anything of their opponents, because he says this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For he says it's been granted to you, this is the verse we started with, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So why can Paul then, coming back to our original question, why can Paul say that to the Philippian church? That it's been granted to them not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. We can say that for the same reason that he was rejoicing in his afflictions, because his afflictions, just like theirs, was serving the ultimate goal of magnifying and glorifying Christ. That's what he said again back earlier in the chapter. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. That, he says, is my life's purpose. That's my eager hope, my ultimate goal. So why should believers then consider it as something that's been granted to them when they get to suffer for the sake of Christ? Well, they can rejoice for that because it's also their heart's desire to magnify Christ, whether by life or by death. And one of the the greatest tools in our arsenal, so to speak, one of the greatest tools we have to magnify Christ is the tool of suffering. Few things show Christ to be precious like believers who are willing to suffer for his sake. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this, this is our entire life's calling to call the world and ourselves to repentance and faith in Christ. And few things communicate that call and the earnestness and seriousness and worth of that call. Few things communicate that, like Christians who are willing to suffer for Christ. Christians who even rejoice as they suffer for Christ. I skipped over it earlier, but now notice the theme of joy that pervades this entire chapter and and really this entire letter. Uh, First, Paul says in verse 18, "In, in, in every way that Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. And then again in the next verse, he says, yes, and I will rejoice because I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Again, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Notice the theme of joy that pervades this entire chapter. Why all of this joy in a chapter that's all about suffering? Well, because Jesus Christ is worth 
all of that suffering and all the suffering they could possibly endure and even far more. If they aren't suffering for the faith, then they're to strive for it in their freedom and to do that with joy. And if they are called to suffer and perhaps even to die for the gospel, then still they ought to rejoice because they know that Christ is abundantly worth it. You might think again, I've mentioned it before, with the parable that the Lord Jesus told of the treasure hidden in a field. That this is the parable that the Lord told in Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he sold everything that he had to be able to go and buy that field. In other words, having and knowing Christ is easily worth losing everything else that we have on earth, including our very lives, and those who know Christ and have the the privilege of doing that, of losing everything for him, they do so with joy. A few things testify to the abundant worth of Christ. Few things show how worthy he is more than Christians who rejoice as they suffer for their faith. You might think that the Philippian jailer who would have been sitting in the, in the Philippian church as this letter was read to them, he must have said amen under his breath when he heard Paul writing that as he remembered Paul and Silas in prison after being whipped and beaten, rejoicing and singing hymns to God just after that beating. He would, and then he would have remembered his own joy when he discovered the, the faith that they had after they spoke the word of God to him and how he had believed. And it says he and his family also rejoiced. There's no testimony to the worth of Christ like believers who gladly suffer for his sake. And so then, in conclusion... If it's our goal, which it is, to, manif- to, to, to magnify Christ with our lives, to use our lives to call the world and ourselves to repentance and faith in him, then let us rejoice whenever he gives us opportunities to do so, whether that's through our freedom, striving for the faith of the gospel, or through our suffering by embracing the hard things that the gospel calls us to do, the painful things that the gospel calls us to do, because we know when we embrace those things, we are magnifying the worth of Christ in a way that we almost cannot do any other, by any other means. It's in those very things that we show how worthy Christ is. That's Paul's exhortation for the Philippians, and that's his exhortation also then for us. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 56.